0: What's up, lovely human, and welcome to That's Exciting, the podcast. I'm your host, CNC, a curious soul who loves to learn about intimacy, relationships, and sexuality. I am also a Bachelor in Interdisciplinary Studies in Sexuality. I wanted to start the episode with some updates and news. The podcast is going to be dropping every two weeks from now on. That is due to work and university as I want to bring as much knowledge as I can to the podcast and also maintain the production quality of these episodes. I kind of don't want to go half-ass and drop episodes every week just because I have to. And I want to make sure that you enjoy the podcast as much as I enjoy producing it. So this is for the benefit of us all. As you know that this podcast is all done voluntarily, I started a GoFundMe. And today I am at... $2,680 on my total goal of $3,500. That's just amazing. So I want to thank everyone for the support that you've shown, either through sharing the podcast, listening to the episodes, sharing the content, and contributing to the GoFundMe. I am currently doing the trademark process I've started, and it's a long process that can take up to a year or so. I'm definitely going to keep you posted in the episodes. If you want to contribute or share it with your peers, the link is in the show notes. So today we are talking about sexual shame. And to talk about this fascinating topic, we're joined by Eleanor Gershman, who sounds like this.
1: Let's make people stop having sex because we're spreading disease a lot.
0: Eleanor will enlighten us throughout the episode about sexual shame and sex education. Eleanor is currently pursuing her master's in social work from the Brown School at Washington University in St. Louis, as well as working towards a certification as a sex educator. She specializes in sexual health and education and has a great passion for promoting positive sexuality and helping people learn more about their body, relationships, and breaking down the barriers to pleasure. She has experience as a sexuality facilitator and understands the importance of recognizing And overcoming sexual shame. She believes everyone should have the chance to experience pleasure in sexuality and feel confident in their own skin. We're also joined by Casey Mao, who's today's guest, who sounds like this
2: You're talking about your penis or touching your penis in the bathtub. Don't do that, that's bad.
0: Casey Mao, she, her, is a sex educator, researcher, and coach with 11 years of experience working in a variety of individual, couple, and families. She specializes in helping people understand pleasure before, during, and after pregnancy, along with applying a trauma-informed, sex-positive, and medically-accurate approach to a variety of topics in mental and sexual health. Casey Mao is a certified sex coach with a training from Sex Coach you under Dr. Patty Britton and also a graduate from Widener University's Master of Human Sexuality Education Program in 2018. She's currently accepting new clients for one-on-one coaching sessions. As today we are talking about sexual shame, one thing it's important to address is white supremacy. So sit down, take out your notebooks and pen, and let the class begin. To understand sexual shame, we need to understand systems of oppression. One notable concept that we've learned in class, in my studies, that I'm super happy to bring on the podcast is white supremacy. The idea of the one ideal white race. This affects everyone from black indigenous folks to people of color as well as white people. For white supremacy to sustain itself, it requires oppression tactics to remain in power. And such tactics include the development of race based on pseudoscientific concepts like phrenology, which is the study of skulls, physiognomy, which is the study of facial features, and the analysis of results. And by that, I mean looking at the result of a situation through a white cis male gaze without understanding the entire context. A good example of this comes from the book Killing the Black Body from Dorothy Roberts. From a historical standpoint, she addresses how Black women are perceived and were perceived by white slave owners, white scientists, and white scholars. And she elaborates on where the Harold portrait of Black women being unfit mothers comes from in the U.S. So in the chapter of her book, she talks about the modern way poor Black women benefiting from welfare in the 90s are represented. So she says the picture of reckless black fertility is made the more frightening by a more devious notion of black childbearing. Poor black mothers do not simply procreate irresponsibly. They purposely have more and more children to manipulate taxpayers into giving them more money. So in summary, the image depicted of black women having more babies to fatten their monthly check is a false conclusion. Rather than looking at the context, what's the economic? status the current politics in place the discriminating laws is there a practice of redlining etc so you see there is more to the picture. It cannot be simplified by saying that poor Black mothers are taking advantage of the system. And I'm pretty sure that if you think about it and reflect on such narrative, you're going to find specific examples and you can look at it through the lens of intersectionality. Think about ethnicities, people of color, indigenous people, Black people, fat people. There's a whole bunch of misconceptions, laws that makes it so that these communities are marginalized and that the world wasn't built for people who look like them. Overall, this ideology is common among two concepts of interest to us. So sexuality and the gender binary. White supremacy has ties with the concept of essentialism. If you're not familiar with what that is, essentialism defines everything by its essence. So for us humans, this means that your biology is your identity. Let's start with sexuality. So the concept of a so-called abnormal sexuality, at the time masturbation was one, homosexual relations, and the quote-unquote low sex drive and et cetera, that was understood through pseudoscience, human studies like psychology, psychiatry, et cetera, religion, and economics. I'm pretty sure that there's other spheres that I haven't named. So these fields of study are also oppression tools. For example, a quote-unquote normal sexuality, from that standpoint, would be sex between a man and a woman for procreation only, a nuclear family model in part for the economy and for the sustain of the quote-unquote superior race. If we take, for example, in the slavery era, Black women were forced to have babies in order to have more quote-unquote free labor, which is simply disgusting. And if we take a more recent example, Black and Indigenous folks are still sterilized without consent. In certain areas. Just take a moment to let that sink in. So, these are examples of how sexuality is tied to white supremacy. Now, the gender binary. Basically, that is the notion that your sex that was assigned to you at birth is your identity. So, if you're born with a penis, you're a man. And if you have a vulva, a uterus, and a vagina, you're a woman and for this one i'm gonna let my dear friend maya that was on the episode number four called gender versus sex explain the difference also if you want to hear the whole episode it's really good so go check it out people will
3: look at someone's biology and whatever they feel like their biology signifies about their identity, that is who that person is. So this happens with sex and gender all the time because people will look at a person, like, you know, the whole sex assigned at birth thing. Your biology is like the essence of you essentially. And this has gone like really, really problematically when it comes to race and gender as well, where in the past and unfortunately still today, but less so, scientists have looked at the biology of Black people, the size of their skulls or of their brains. And they've looked at the hormonal levels of women, cis women specifically. And they point to those things to say, see, this is why Black people aren't smart. And see, this is why women are really emotional. Because Black people aren't smart, because women are really emotional, they should not be like allowed access to certain kinds of rational intellectual spaces. If you have a penis, then you are a man and you are masculine and like all of those things like and, and then you're also attracted to femininity because that's the opposite of what you are and so you need the opposite present in your life it's like all of those things are just assumed to line up But I read this fascinating research article that's like, not only is it the case that most people have a mix of masculine and feminine kind of personality, characteristics, behaviors, interests, etc. This is also true at the neurological level and the physiological level. So it's actually the case that most people have a mosaic of traditionally masculine and feminine like parts of their brain so there's no one brain that only exhibit or not no but majority of brains exhibit some mixture of masculine characteristics and feminine characteristics and that's also true in our psychology so psychologically there's typically some sort of mix of masculine and feminine characteristics and so that comes out in our personalities in our interests and things like that
0: So overall, the notion of quote-unquote normality in sexuality and gender expression we can see serves and is kind of tied to white supremacy. For example, if you fit outside of the binary, you're something to either fix, ostracize, and or punish. And we can see that a lot on the political sphere today. Now that we've covered the basis, let's further our exploration with Eleanor and Casey.
1: I think the way that we think about it today really has a lot to do with religious values and it's very much based in religious morals and teachings, but that doesn't mean that it can't still affect everybody. Certainly today, it's become quite mainstream. And I think a lot of our politics and our media, certainly in the US, it's a very puritanical, patriarchal society. So very much sexual repression. (laughs) I think we've been there for a long time, unfortunately. When we think of modern purity culture, the purity culture movement really began kind of after World War II ended. Well, 1960 is when the contraceptive pill was available on the market. People were having a lot more just sex having fun with it, and they were having sex for enjoyment because women didn't have to worry so much about getting pregnant, and so they could go and do their thing and have fun. Unfortunately, we see the AIDS epidemic really raging through communities. There's just this general moral panic that's beginning, and a lot of that moral panic kind of comes through with evangelical religious organizations. I mean, abstinence-only education started off as let's ha- make people stop having sex because we're spreading disease a lot. That was basically their idea idea. So since 1981, I believe, since then, the government has spent $2 billion on abstinence only sex education in the U.S.
2: When you say purity culture and the impact that that has, we see the homophobia, transphobia and the impact that this has. Thinking about like for black trans women being murdered at a disproportionate rate, that's not coming from nowhere. If we don't get to those root causes, homophobia, transphobia, even racism and classism, we're really not going to make a positive impact.
0: Now that we've covered the basis of where sexual shame can come from, let's explore the what it is and the how it manifests. And to do so, we're jumping right in the episode. What can sexual shame sound like and what can it look like?
2: So sexual shame can sound like somebody being uncomfortable talking about sex, right? I think about children. As children, we are so vulnerable to all of the information around us. And a lot of times adults or even other children will say something to us that maybe makes us feel bad about ourselves, whether it's about our body or you're having a crush on somebody and then you find out, oh, that's bad, whether it's due to your sexual identity starting to form. And a lot of times we have great opportunity to start sex education so young and avoid a lot of shame. That's why I'm going this direction, because I think the root causes of shame can really be avoided. If we start early, we could talk to children about their body parts and that we're all different, right? And our differences actually make us unique and such great people. But instead, a lot of times we'll say you're talking about your penis or touching your penis in the bathtub. Don't do that. That's bad. And it goes on and on and on. And of course, as we're adults, we might have difficulty connecting with others. We might be insecure, whether it's about our body image, our sexual identity, our sexual self-image, how satisfied we are with sex. We have all these ideas of what we should be doing. You might hear me say that a lot because that is a lot of where this comes from and on and on and on. So those are some things I think about when we talk about sexual shame.
0: If we elaborate a little bit on the sex ad for yo- younger people, <laughs> for younger- <laughs> for- <laughs> I feel like there's a lot of Adults that are really uncomfortable having these discussions, probably because the conversation that they had was either non-existent, really uncomfortable in itself also, or it can can be a a tricky subject if you don't feel like you have the tools or resources. So when you talk about uh, sexual education for children, what would you see by parents and also in school?
2: A lot of adults, we don't even know where to start because Mm -hmm. of what you said. We've had the same experiences, most of us, as children. It's either non-existent or we've been shamed ourselves Mm -hmm. and we're working through our own shit. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So how do we not recreate that with the young people around us, whether it's our own children, whether it's people in our family, our friends' children? I would say starting with getting that basic knowledge is really important so you can feel more confident talking about it. There's an amazing website. It's called Sex Positive Families. And I would really encourage people to check that out because it has so many different resources that makes it so easy to look up whatever you want to know about sex and how to talk about it within a family setting. If you don't want to take that step that far, even just talking to young people about the correct name for their body parts can go a huge, long way. Not being afraid to say things like, we're in the bathtub, you're going, we're going to wash your vulva Mm -hmm. or. You have a penis, you have arms and legs, right? Right.
0: (laughs) We talk about every body parts and except for, oh, you're wee wee, you're bum bum.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. So putting it on the same playing field and not attaching that shame to it, because when you make it feel like it's a secret or if you're scared to say it or we're giving funny words to it, right, to get around talking about what it actually is. That can actually create shame in our young people and that can carry on to our adulthood. And then we're wondering why as adults we're seeing issues with sex or communicating our needs with others because we might not know or we're scared to say what we'd like for that fear of being shamed.
0: This is so interesting because now that you said that, I am reflecting on the terminology that was used when I was younger. And I used to hate when somebody said vulva. Ew, vulva. <laughs> <laughs> it was like... Oh, we're going to wash your, your shushun, and we're going to want other different terms. I was like, OK, cool. But like the real actual terms, it kind of created a taboo around it, which is interesting.
2: I wonder if as you're saying this and actually I pretty much know, right, because of working with different people, but it's also a cultural thing. Culturally, I wonder how we're creating shame in our families, because as you just said, maybe for you, it was using those more medical terms might have actually turned you away from wanting to talk about it, whereas somebody else might really be drawn to that. Right. How do we make it comfortable to have the conversation in general, no matter what the term is? When
1: I think of comprehensive sex education, I refer to it more as comprehensive sexuality education. So it's more than just sex. Like I think a lot of people just assume if we're teaching kids sex education, we're teaching them how to have sex, they're going to have sex, and it's going to cause all these problems, but they don't really understand how much really goes into it. Like ideally we would start comprehensive sexuality education in like kindergarten, and it's not about teaching them about sex it's about teaching them physical personal boundaries and like oh well you know if it just pokes you out of nowhere how does that make you feel and it's just getting kids to start understanding what makes them feel good what makes them feel bad and start kind of building up that like confidence to put up those boundaries and be like no please don't do that ask me first or knowing kind of what they're comfortable with and not comfortable with we we really don't do that a lot with kids, you know, like, oh, go hug grandma. And we're forcing kids to basically accept what we would want them to do, rather than thinking about what might they want.
2: Just starting there, when it comes to cis men, they're held up to standards that say, the more people you sleep with, the higher up on the sexual hierarchy you are. I'm thinking about a lot of people are shamed if you don't have a lot of sexual partners if you're a cis male. They're shamed for not being masculine enough or this tough guy, the alpha right? Man.
0: <laughs> alpha. <laughs> the script is very narrow.
2: It is very narrow. There's definitely a sexual script when it comes to cis men. Then we look at cis women because this is the binary that's typically talked about, right? It's often we expect them to be virgin like We expect cis women to either be a hoe or a housewife. Is that the Madonna whore complex? Exactly where I'm getting to. Yes, (laughs) you got it. (laughs) You have to be either pure or you're a hoe and not worthy of sex. And even if you're pure or you're a mother or you're a wife, then you're only existing sexually to please typically cis men. Those ideas, I think, are internalized when it comes to sexual shame, because then if you're not fitting those boxes, you're shamed for it. And that's where that comes in, because you feel like you're not behaving in a way that makes you worthy of marriage or relationship or great sex to accept your body, all of those things. And then uh, if we're thinking about somebody who is trans or non-binary, a lot of the shame can come from not fitting the gender binary, people expecting that that's the only way to be. And a lot of that could come from friends, family who internalize this, where it's not okay to be yourself, either religious institutions or government. But then if you throw in sexual orientation into that, if you're gay or or you're pansexual or you're something that somebody hasn't heard of, then that's not okay. What does that do to people when you're telling them your whole existence is not okay with me? That can go further. We could go deeper into it. We didn't even talk about race or religion or how that intersects with that as well and how that can make it even more narrow for people. That box gets even more narrow, I think, than versus men versus women. It just creates <laughs> shame for everybody. It's
0: like, wait a second. <laughs> Can we elaborate on how one may experience sexual shame in their sexual journey? For instance, when you have no kids when you're pregnant, and also after having a baby?
2: Somebody who doesn't have children yet. A lot of those examples we talked a little bit about already, right? Thinking about childhood, your body, internalizing this. You're getting older, maybe you hit puberty. That's a... Whole nother hell of a time you're dealing with your body changing and whether you feel comfortable in the body you're in, whether you identify with the gender that has been thrown at you. You could also be shamed whether you're in a relationship, not in a relationship. Are you single? Are you married? Are you going to have kids?
0: That one. If
2: not, that's an issue. So those are the examples
0: I would give to that. When Rihanna was pregnant and she was showing her belly, she was beautiful, she was having those outfit, the amount of comments and shame that I saw for her feeling herself.
2: I've been waiting to talk about Rihanna and her pregnancy because I am so (laughs) in love. Oh, my God. Stunning. (laughs) Break that whole picture of a certain pregnant person having to fit a box. Just shatter that image for us, please. Yes. Even with her celebrity status, she faced a lot of those same things. You can't be just a successful businesswoman and that be enough for other people, really. That That's what it comes down to, right? Shame comes down to other people. It has really nothing to do with our authentic selves and who we are, because I don't think Rihanna had any issue with her level of success and, and who she is. She seems pretty unapologetic about that. And whether or not people want to shame that, they do. Of course, they say she is too sexy. And again, going back to that Madonna horror complex, you cannot be sexy and be a mother, of course. Once you have kids, you just don't even bother to get stretch marks or change in any way. After kids... I'm thinking about somebody who is postpartum. Shame for them a lot of times comes in the form of changes in sexual desire. You're
0: tired. A baby. (laughs) There you go.
2: Your priorities a lot of times change. And that's not to say that after kids, some people don't have lots of great sex because they do. But sometimes... There are people who are dealing with things like postpartum depression. You're dealing with a new baby, learning how your body works. You might have pain. There's a whole list of things that have changed for them. With that, then sometimes shame comes from the partner. So it's not even always from society, but you might be shamed in your unit as well. It could sound like you don't care about my sexual needs anymore you're not sexy anymore. (laughs) Why are you putting the baby first before me? And at the root of all of those things, the suggestion is that something's wrong with you, not me. The partner is not seeing that maybe there's just a difference. And maybe neither person is right or wrong. Especially when it comes to sexual desire, a lot of times people think if you don't want to have the same amount of sex as somebody, and this could be regardless of kids, if you don't want to have the same amount of sex, that the person who wants less sex or no sex is the one in the wrong. And that's where that person might be insecure themselves and kind of projecting I think it's because we place such a high value. We as in society or outside people, not necessarily me and you. We place such a high value on the amount of sex, the number of partners, and comparing that to each other. And my head wants to explode when I hear it, because if you were able to hear everyone talk about it, it's so different. What one couple thinks is a great sex life might be sex once a month. Whereas the other couple, if they're not having sex three times a day, every day a week, then they feel like they're failing. As long as, you know, you feel good about the sex you're having, that's the ultimate goal. It doesn't matter to compare it to other people. So absolutely, people will get defensive a lot of times and we have to go over communication strategies.
0: I wanted to jump in to offer more clarification on what was said. So the difference in sexual desire. There's nothing wrong with that. If you and your partner, partners have a difference in your sexual desire, that's absolutely okay. What I wish to bring nuance on is how this is brought up. If it's brought up in a criticism way, you don't care about my needs, you care more about this, then your partner is most likely not going to want to have the conversation either closing up or this is going to start an argument. And that in itself, you're not advocating for your needs and what you would like. There's a way to bring conversations up. And it's through the I statement. So for example, I love her sex life and I feel like we haven't had sex in a while. Can we talk about this? Or I'd love for us to connect more sexually. How are you feeling about that? This is letting your partner or partners know that you want to connect with them sexually. And it opens a conversation. Your partner is much more likely going to be open to this conversation if you talk with I statement and don't criticize them. And these conversations are super important to have. Communication is very important. And I think that's the point that I've drawn home (laughs) through this whole podcast. So if you ever need help, there's always sex therapists near you and there's plenty resources online. And just know that you're not alone. We'll learn more about sexual shame right after this. When it comes to sexual pleasure, there's nothing I hated more than the feeling of drying out lube and the process of having to find a compatible and enjoyable lube for my silicone toys. If that's your case, Sutil is the perfect lube for you. I've been using Sutil Luxe for the past two years, and let me tell you, the texture is amazing. It is so silky and really pleasurable, so I'm not changing my lube anytime soon. Sutil is a water based, paraben and glycerin free piece balance that's very important lube made with the finest botanical eco-certified ingredients made by two canadian women who understand the whys what's and hows they offer sutil in deluxe and rich formats optimal for any type of play perfect with condoms and your favorite toys enhance your experiences today for luxurious and silky pleasure choose sutil how can someone start their journey of shedding sexual shame? And also, um, what are some exercises that they can do?
2: Some tips I would say to get started is think about where the shame comes from. It might start with having to do a lot of self-reflection, journal or meditate take a walk and really think about what is the source of that? Is it that it came from a church that you went to? Is it coming from your family, from your partner? Is it a social media page that you follow that is just not serving you anymore? Whatever that source of shame is, once you figure that out, that's easier said than done, especially if we're talking about families, if we're talking about friends, that can be really difficult because you might not have access to giving it up at that moment or feel like you don't. When you can, really try to brainstorm how you're going to move away from that source of shame. Move towards people that make you feel good about that potential and pleasure and happiness and you feel it. When you're reflecting on this, feel the difference in your body. So when you're thinking about that source of shame, notice how you feel. Do you feel tenseness in your chest, icky feeling in your gut? Do you feel shaky or unsteady or tired? And then notice how you feel around. Hopefully you have access to people that make you feel good and happy and in alignment with who you are, just as you are not judging you and notice how you feel around those people. And for me, I can say when I'm around those people, I get energy. I feel like I'm good to go. I feel like I am aligned. I am light, authentic, calm, relaxed, and just those feelings can kind of start to guide you without even really having to think that deeply about it, right? Our bodies speak to us probably before our minds do.
0: A great place to start is my check-in episode number 19 on sexual shame, titled Shedding Shame. In your coaching offers, there is the sexual satisfaction strategy session. The reason I named it that
2: (laughs) is because when we talk about sex, there's a lot of different things. But if you're not satisfied with how your sex life is going at the end of the day, then we have to have some in coaching, some measurable item to see, Okay, is this working for you? The sexual satisfaction strategy session, we go over on a scale from one to five. How do you currently feel about your sex life? How satisfied are you currently? In that session, we go over what exactly are your concerns or your goals? What are you working towards? And how do we get you there? So that includes very personalized resources. It could be books, it could be websites, it could be something like we said, the John Gottman strategies, all of that is then put into an action plan. And that's sent to my clients. So they have something tangible to look back on. And then as I work through sessions with them, we're able to go back to that initial strategy to see how far that person came or what we still need to work on.
0: The strategy, can it be applied to either couples, individuals, everybody? Everybody,
2: yes. That's awesome. When I say couples, that could be any type of couple, sexual orientation. It could be a grandma and a daughter like (laughs) wanting to (laughs) work through sexual shame. Wanting to talk about why have we never talked about sex or why is it so taboo in our house? How do we not pass that on to maybe the granddaughter or something? Bringing it also back to my ideal clients. Typically, I work with those who are, are interested in trying to conceive currently pregnant or postpartum just because I have also experience in reproductive health. So I like to include that as well.
0: Ah, a huge thank you to Eleanor and Casey for coming on the podcast and bringing your knowledge and expertise on sexual shame. One thing that is important to highlight is that everybody is at different stages of their sexual journey. And that may be discovering their gender, rediscovering their gender, exploring their sexuality and also shedding shame and I think this is a part that we all have in common that I don't hear about too too much and speaking of shedding shame this is a personal note on my end I am in this continuous journey of shedding shame and how this shame is um, happening for me is with my body currently this is something that I've always struggled with where even when I was at my skinniest I thought that I needed to lose weight and this is something that has been problematic on my end uh, with having a lot of anxiety. I had troubles eating at some point Um, just forgetting to eat and that's just been um, yeah that's just been a difficult journey in itself and Ever since my grandma passed this last May, I wasn't really paying attention to what I was eating. So there was a lot of ordering out and I stopped exercising. I'm usually someone that loves to get in my body and love to exercise just to feel the energy that it gives and the clarity that it offers me um, with my thoughts. And uh, I haven't done that. I've been pretty static, uh, working a lot and... I think drowning my sorrow and my grief in a way. And now every time that I look in the mirror, I can't help but to... Not necessarily in a negative way, but see that I have, let's say, new stretch marks or see that my stomach is a bit more full than it was a year ago. And it is a continuous journey of learning my body again because I don't have the same body as when I was 19 or 20. And the funny thing about this is my parents keep telling me at 25, you'll see your body is going to react differently. And that's kind of (laughs) true. Uh, I feel like I am going through an adult puberty, (laughs) in a way, where my knees hurt when I wake up, (laughs) where my metabolism is not the same, and that's completely okay. I'm learning every day to embrace where I'm at in this journey, letting space for days where I feel like shit and I just want to do whatever, and other days to live through that confidence and that extra boost that I have. But this has been a difficult journey of mine, and I think that's linked with sexual shame because my weight makes me feel unattractive and doesn't make me want to have sex as much. Um, I think I'm realizing that I feel self-conscious and there's like jiggles that I've never felt before. <laughs> so in itself, that's a journey where I'm learning to love myself and I'm learning to discover new things about myself. But all this to say that um, we're all on our journey and our path and Whatever I was dealing with at 19, because I'm pretty sure I was dealing with a lot of sexual shame um, that I didn't really unpack back then. I've addressed most, most of it, but there's always something that comes up, I guess, especially with the messaging that society tells you where being fat or having a little bit more body weight is deemed as unattractive. That's absolutely not true. So that's where I'm at in my journey um, where are you at? If you want to start questioning and start reflecting on those questions, I highly recommend my last episode, the check-in episode on shedding shame. Uh, This is an exercise that I did and um, I've learned a few stuff and I think that would be valuable for you too. Anyways, we are at the end of the podcast. And as usual, I hope that you found value in what I offered today. And uh, yeah, we're at that part. Leave a review and uh, rate the podcast. This is like your YouTube like, comment, subscribe, aka the content creator currency. This really helps me know what I have to improve on and also know what type of content you like and where to aim my arrow of sexual expression. I guess. (laughs) I don't know what that was. Also, share the GoFundMe with your grandma, your grandparents with your parents, with your boo, with his brother, sister, everyone. Let's reach the goal of $3,500. And everything is explained on how the funds are being intended to be used on the GoFundMe. So go check that out. And as I said in the beginning, I am in the trademark process, which takes up to a year. And I can't wait to keep y'all updated because this is just surreal. On this note... I will see you in two weeks. Take care of yourself and your loved ones. And in the meantime, stay curious because that's exciting.
3: That's exciting.
0: Before we leave, on production team, recording, editing, and sound design by yours truly myself, Yancy. Special thanks to Jane P for her assistance on production. The official That's Exciting Anthem by Calder Nash. The amazing vocals on the track by Mel Pacifico. That's all for today's episode, and until next week, stay curious, because that's exciting.